Take your Bible, if you would, and join me today in the book of Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter number 14. While you're turning, I remember a time, this was some years ago, but not, not too many years ago. Julie and I were still living in Colorado, and um, I had been invited to come back to Pensacola Christian College. And so I had come back and was also invited while I was here to speak at a high school graduation, a high school commencement for Pensacola Christian Academy. And so I went to the rehearsal and knew where I was supposed to stand and when to take my hat off and put my hat back on, and and I understood the basics of the ceremony. Well, it was during this time when the, at that time, president and founder of Pensacola Christian College, Dr. Arlen Horton, was also involved in this high school commencement service. But Dr. Horton was not at the rehearsal, uh, but I was at the rehearsal, and, and he, of course, was just going to go and stand and, and shake hands, and, and he'd done it numbers of times before. Well, the ceremony began to unfold, and we're marching in, and then I went and stood at the place where I thought I was supposed to stand. So I went, and, and I stood in front of a chair, and, and then the last person to enter the auditorium with the processional was Dr. Horton. Dr. Horton is now the president emeritus of Pensacola Christian College, but of course, again, at that time, he was the president of PCC and, and of course, over its related ministries. So I'm standing there, and then Dr. Horton comes up, and he had kind of a a little sly smile on his face as he's approaching. We're going to sit next to each other, and and he came up to me, and then he kind of whispered. Now, we're all standing waiting for it to begin, and he kind of smiled at me, and he said, you're in my chair. (laughs) Well, immediately, I just did the slide over. And the ceremony continued. Now, needless to say, I was a little embarrassed when Dr. Horton had to say, scoot over, you're in my chair, okay? Well, that one belonged to him. It didn't belong to me. That was his chair. In Romans chapter 14, we start to find that there is a chair that oftentimes we try to take possession of, and it's not ours to sit in. It belongs to someone else. And yet, there are times when we try to work our way into a seat that we feel fairly comfortable in. We've sat there countless times before. And it's almost as if God, the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, is giving us a little whisper from the person who belongs in that judgment seat. It's almost as if we can hear Jesus himself come and say with a kindness that is befitting him, scoot over. You're in my seat. The passage of Scripture that is about to unfold before us is a passage that the Apostle Paul doesn't seem to be passing over very quickly. In fact, it's a passage that he is taking his time with as we are finding ourselves in this very practical portion of the book of Romans. And again, in some rather direct fashion, the Apostle Paul is saying to believers, scoot over. 
when we find ourselves in the wrong seat. The title of our message today is simply that, sitting in the wrong seat. At this point in Romans chapter 14, we've discovered that as it pertains to non-essential matters, unity, not uniformity, is the biblical priority. And again, Paul is not trying to rush past or, or simply mention in some kind of passing fashion the importance of this truth. Our Bibles are open to Romans chapter 14. In just a moment, we're going to begin by reading verse number 10. And the first thing that we're going to notice in this passage today is what we'll call our familiar problem. Our familiar problem, and that is standing in judgment of others. Standing in judgment of others. It is quite the familiar problem. Sadly, it is all too often our practice. In fact, I found myself doing this mentally just this past week. This past week, after I have just preached an opening message from Romans chapter 14, I found myself as I viewed the social media account of another pastor who was doing ministry as he practiced some matters that were non-essential matters, I found myself very quickly coming with a judgmental spirit saying, I would never do it that way. Well, I, I don't even know why he's doing it that way. And then all of a sudden I come to my senses and I'm thinking, do I know the circumstances, the setting, all of the different things that come into a decision to do it that way? Those circumstances are not mine, nor are mine his. And yet I found myself with an all too familiar problem, standing in judgment of others. Because I, I conclude, well, I wouldn't do it that way. Does that mean that no one should ever do something that way? Now, again, remember, we're talking about these non-essential matters, but matters that the church at Rome held very near and very dear to their heart. Let's begin with Romans 14, verse number 10. Here the Bible records, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Did you notice the repetition of the word brother? The Holy Spirit seems to be emphasizing something so that we don't miss the point. The believers were judging one another on the basis of things that certainly mattered to them individually, but apparently weren't all that important to God. Our challenge is that we often make enemies of those that God has called brothers. And he very plainly says here, but why dost thou judge thy brother? He's asking an important question. Now, before we are quick to answer, well, because they did this, this, and this, are we asking some additional questions? Are these essential matters? Why dost thou judge thy brother? Years ago, I was invited to preach somewhere that I didn't feel liberty to, to give the affirmative yes. 
So I declined, but I let them know I don't have an issue with you and and I don't have an issue with your ministry. I just don't feel the liberty or that now is the appropriate time for me to accept that invitation. And what I heard back was some wise counsel that has stayed with me for a lot of years. What the gracious person on the other end of the phone said was to this effect. They said, Jeff, thank you for your honest answer. And he said, we don't want to pressure you in any way, shape, or form to come and put yourself in any kind of a situation that may be compromised for whatever reason. And then he said this. He said, you know, just know that while we may not be fighting in the same foxhole, we certainly are fighting the same enemy. And you know, it's interesting that at times in our Christian faith, we sometimes turn the artillery to another foxhole as opposed to a common enemy. And what Paul's addressing here is that we have a familiar problem, and that is we are standing in judgment of another brother. Paul is saying, in essence, what's the point of your judging? We have a job to do as a follower of Christ, and judging your brother isn't part of your job description. The church at Corinth was was judging the motives of the Apostle Paul. And of course, the only person that can judge a motive is God. Again, he sits in that seat of judgment alone. Notice how Paul instructs the church. He's saying this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. He said, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. Now pause here for just a minute before we go any further. Did you notice a couple of things? First of all, Paul said, it's, it's a small thing that I'm judged of you. Now I do take note that Paul doesn't, doesn't say it's nothing that I'm judged of you. There was at least something connected to the weight that that places on the Apostle Paul. He says, okay, it's not much, but there is something of being judged of another person. Something that we have added now to their plate. He says, okay, it's, it's not a lot. And he says, it's a small thing. And then he goes on, he says, or of man's judgment. He says, I judge not mine own self. I think what he's alluding to here is how can I fully even know the motives and intentions of my own heart? How can I fully understand? No, 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 no. My motives are absolutely pure. You know, as soon as we're invited to do something or to minister in some way, shape, or form, we may strive for the purity of motive, but but is there always that pure motive that Paul comes to the place where he says, I can't even fully or accurately judge myself. He goes on, verse number four. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time, until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of the heart, and then shall every man have praise of God. Let's consider a couple things about this passage. First thing, and just, just by way of mention, there's, there's something that he's trying to help us understand. We are the stewards of God. We are God's stewards. 
It is to him we desire first and foremost to be found faithful. Now, I do think there should be something visible about a life that is a faithful steward of God that's also demonstrated as faithful before others. I, I think the Apostle Paul understood that. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I am also of Christ. I'm striving to follow Christ because I know there are others following me. But the whole arching truth under which this rests are we are first stewards of God. And ultimately, the more faithful we are in our heavenly stewardship, the more equipped we will become in our human stewardships. And then maybe even more weighty in this passage in 1 Corinthians, the judgment of others and even the judgment of self cannot be fully relied upon. One pastor said it this way. He said, first of all, understand we are not omniscient, so our judgment doesn't have all the facts. We're not omniscient, so why should we evaluate other people's actions in non-essential areas as if we have all the facts? I read the story about a pastor who was speaking. He's a well-known pastor, known by many. He was preaching at a conference in Washington State, and um, he was telling about being at a camp where he was preaching. So he's at this conference talking to pastors, but he says, I was preaching at a smaller setting to a retreat Bible conference, and the first day that he was there, a man approached him, and he simply... <clears throat> He simply said, <clears throat> he didn't say much, is what he didn't say. <clears throat> he simply said, I have been looking forward to hearing you preach for a very long time. He said, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for coming to preach. I have been so looking forward to hearing you preach. And that night, as people were taking their seats, this pastor saw this man work his way down to the very front section, um, find himself seated and just looking intently with paper and notes out ready to listen to this man teach the word of God. Not long into the session, he noticed that the man began to nod off and finally fell asleep in the service. Well, it was the first day of the service, so he thought, you know, this man probably has been traveling and a lot of people are tired, and so he let it pass. But the next night, the same thing happened. There was some excitement as he began, but very shortly, this man dozed off, and, and quite honestly, he slept through most of the service. And that happened through the course of the conference. The last night of the conference, and of course, through the course of that, that conference, this speaker was getting a little bit frustrated. Even when the man would come by and make some comment about what a blessing it was to hear him speak, he thought, well, you must have gotten that blessing in the first few minutes of my, of my sermon. And uh, the last night of the conference, this man's wife came up and she said, I, I please, uh, I hope you will forgive my husband. Um, he was recently diagnosed with terminal cancer. He is taking heavy medication, but it has been one of his lifelong dreams to hear you preach. So thank you for facilitating a lifelong dream before my husband passes into eternity. And of course, for the speaker, all kinds of things be 
begin to flood over his mind because he made assumptions about another and he didn't truly have all the facts. Do you know when we're thinking about this passage, we think we're not omniscient, so our judgment doesn't have all the facts. The other thing we know, we're not objective. So our judgment is tainted by self-interest. We're, we're not fully objective about these things. Simply stated, you and I have personal agendas that taint our judgment of others. Uh, l- let's ask it this way. Do your children, do they, do they bother you the same way some other people, the neighbor kids might bother you? I mean, you could even do something as simple as your pet. Is your dog's bark as annoying as your neighbor's bark? You say, well, it's not my neighbor's, it's their dog. Well, either one, okay? You know, there are some things that we say, well, I give a certain pass to this, but this really bothers me. I think oftentimes it's because we're simply not objective and our judgment is tainted by self-interest. Even the other failures of people around us don't seem to... We don't seem to be bothered by our own failures to the same extent that we do the failures of those around us. Next, we're not God. So our judgment has no jurisdiction. We're not God. So our judgment has no jurisdiction. Think about it. Do we really have the jurisdiction to judge? Clearly God does. But has he invited us to contribute? Does he need a little helpful insight from us into the actions of others? And there is an obvious answer, and that is he does not need our help. And then lastly, when we consider this, we're not perfect. So our judgment is hypocritical. We often judge others as if we have no issues ourselves. And that, according to the Bible measure, is hypocritical. I think someday in heaven, there are going to be a lot of aha moments when we understand more clearly why something happened or why someone said what they said or worship God in a certain way. And we'll have these aha. Now those things that I didn't fully see on earth are revealed in heaven and I now understand what, what I saw in some hazy form, now I see with a clarity that is befitting the decision. Sometimes that's just a little matter. Have you ever been upset at another person for just a little matter? Have you ever kind of gotten a cold shoulder from someone and you wondered what happened and, and they just didn't acknowledge you and you said, hey, is everything okay? And then you learn, well, I said hello to you yesterday and you just walked right by me. Have you ever had a situation, a setting like that? And you're a little taken back. It's like, oh, I didn't even know that I offended. I, di- I didn't even, I had this on my mind or I was just coming from or a whole myriad of circumstances. And yet someone has taken offense over something that you were quite honestly, sadly unaware. These are just little things. But sometimes it's the little things that make a big difference. Not long ago, for example, not long ago, we paid a bill that was, in fact, I wrote the the total of the bill down. It wasn't very large. It was $64.82, $64.82. So we we sent the bill off through a bill pay service. They write the check for you and they mail it and send it off, $64.82. Somehow there were added just a couple little things to that check. 
Just two little zeros were added to the end of that number. $64.82 became $6,482. We've been living in a tent for the last two months. I just want to... I mean, what's a couple zeros? A couple zeros is a really big deal. Well, what's a little... Listen, there are so many littles that we don't fully understand. And sometimes those little numbers, so to speak, factor in such a large way. Someday, the aha. I think there was a lot of judging going on at the church of Colossae. A lot of little fires, so to speak. James 3, 5, a little, behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. It was just a little thing. And so Paul begins to address it in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 16. He says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or in the new moon or in the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. Do you realize how weighty it would have been for the church at Colossae to hear the Apostle Paul said, let no man judge you, which also translates into you should be judging no man as it pertains to what you're eating or drinking or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon. And then maybe he saved the most weighty for last. Maybe he's building up to because how are they going to handle this? Let no man judge you as it pertains to the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day. How in the world could a Jew not look at another person that all of their faith rotates around the Sabbath day? I mean, the Pharisees had added so many rules and restrictions to what end? Well, we're trying to protect the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was, was like the, the, the center gravitational pull of all things around which their faith is supposed to rotate. And yet he says very clearly, let no man judge you regarding the Sabbath day. And then he says in verse 17, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Oftentimes, churches or Christian institutions, for that matter, will implement policies or rules or guidelines because they help address a cultural or traditional or even a preferential matter for groups of people. It's fine for them to do. I think it's part of what was intended with the statement found in 1 Corinthians 14, 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. But when people of the church begin using the standards of the church as what we referred to last week as their Christian menu, we begin to wade into the murky waters of judging others whenever they don't order off the same Christian menu. So let's move on to verse number 11. The first thing that we see is our familiar problem, standing in judgment of others. But now look at our first priority our first priority, and that is standing before the Lord. Now, if our familiar problem is standing in judgment of others, what should be our first priority? How am I going to help myself address this matter of a continual judgmental spirit? Well, he says, know who you're truly supposed to be standing before. Listen, others are not called to come stand before you. 
You are called to stand before another. Look at verse number 11 and 12, Romans chapter 14. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Did you notice the primary point of these two verses? And I would submit it is this. There is only one Lord, and it is to him alone that we will give account. I heard an evangelist say one time, who is now in heaven, he said, I have nothing to prove. I have one person to please. In verse number 10, the Bible reminds us of this. He says, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, the word judgment seat is a, is a Greek word that you're probably familiar with. We reference this when we're talking about things to come, the, the, the eschatological timeline. There's something that we're still working towards. And one of those events is what we refer to as the judgment seat, or if we borrow that Greek word, we talk about the bema seat of Christ. The bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. Well, this is the raised platform. It would be something that when Paul is referencing um, this to the church at Corinth, which he does, it would have been something that every person in Corinth would have said, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about, the Bema seat. There's a place even today where you can go in Corinth and you can see like, oh, wow, that's where an athlete would actually ascend the steps and still in like fashion today in the Olympics, we would see a person that's on, on one level and then other levels and they are receiving for their accomplishments the recognition, the reward for the work, so to speak, that they have done. So when Paul references this, every person knows I know exactly what he's talking about regarding this judgment seat. Now, a person's not being judged at this time for any wrongdoing. They're not being evaluated like, oh, okay, that was sin, and now we're going to bring all of this to light. That's not the point of this judgment. In fact, the Bible says in John 5, 24, Jesus speaking, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and notice this phrase, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Shall not come into condemnation. Same thing we read in Romans chapter 8, verse number 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The Bema seat is not a, a judgment seat where all of your sin will be judged. That was judged in the person of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. This judgment seat is reserved exclusively for Christians, and it's the place where the followers of Christ will receive their rewards for the works done for Jesus. Or they will experience loss. It's those works that were not done for Christ. They were done to, to in some way, shape, or form, good works, but, oh, they were done in my own strength or for my own name to promote my own self. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Notice what he says. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, and notice what's being judged here, what's being tried, what kind of works. He says gold, silver, 
precious stone, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Verse 14. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. At this judgment seat, again, all believers will stand. And there's only one who will sit in the seat of judgment. It's Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we kind of picture that, at least we practice that judgment seat today as being somewhat of a love seat or a couch. And we know Jesus is seated there, and we know that he is the ultimate judge, but how often do we try to make that seat, that exclusive throne reserved for him, somewhat larger with room for ourselves to also judge? And so we'll sit alongside of him, and we will also offer our judgment for those whose true judgment is reserved exclusively by Christ. We come to a point where we do recognize Jesus as Lord in our lives, but then we do want to be, in some sense, Lord in the lives of others as well. Some time ago, Julie and I lived in a home, and, um, you know, of course, we're driving through a neighborhood, and we noticed that one of the homes had a chosen uh, paint color for their home that did get everybody's attention. Okay, have you ever seen, how many of you have ever just driven through and said, oh, I would not do that? Okay. It's okay, by the way. That's okay. You can say, I would not do that. And we drove by and we couldn't quite figure out the color, but we called it tennis court blue. That's what Julie and I decided that it was. It was this very vibrant tennis court blue house, and it just stood out as quite different in the neighborhood. And we commented on it. Every time we drove by the house, we would drive by and say, tennis court blue, I would not paint my house that color. And, and I think we both knew that we would not paint our house that color. Uh, one day we drove by and we saw a big sign in the front of the house. I mean, a very prominent sign with clearly marked letters. And the sign read that we're driving by. It just said this. It said, yes, the color was approved by the HOA. Okay. Apparently, Julie and I were not the only ones that had some opinion on the color of their house. I think it is okay, of course, that, that we have an opinion on the color of their house, but not to pass judgment on their ability to decide. Have you ever commented on the color of someone's house or the color they painted their door or their car or their nails, for that matter? Apparently, there is some propensity for us to do so. Of course, you can have an opinion, but ultimately, it's not your car. It's not your house. It's not your door. Now, if you moved into a neighborhood, and I think this is important, if you moved into a neighborhood that said you can't paint your door hot pink, then you already made your decision when you moved into the neighborhood. That was your decision to make, not the decision after you moved. If you joined a church where they said, we wear choir robes, then again, decision made. But don't waste your time and energy attempting to sit in judgment 
regarding those things that don't pertain to you. Ultimately, this is an incredible step of trusting that God is able to take care of his own children. The question is, are we willing to trust him to do so? And it is a big step of faith. Well, Lord, if, if I don't, you know, pass judgment on, who's going to? And it's as if God raises an eyebrow and says, well, well, of course, me. It again is to his own master that the servant will answer. Ultimately, again, this is a powerful step of faith. So we know our familiar problem of judging others, and we also know our first priority of standing before our Lord. Now let's consider last our faithful practice, and that is standing beside your brother. Standing beside your brother. Look at verse number 13, Romans chapter 14. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. What a wonderfully and perfectly balanced book we have that we call the Bible. And while we'll explore the truth that we're about to look at more fully next week, notice what Paul is saying here. He's opening the door to a topic that we commonly refer to not simply as our Christian liberty, but also our Christian responsibility. He is speaking to both the weak and the strong, and he's doing so at the same time. He's saying to the weak, stop judging those who are expressing their faith in ways that don't always look the same as you. And he's saying to the strong, stop trying to get the weak to do those things that may violate their weak conscience. What a balance he is seeking to find within the singular body that today we refer to as the church. So let's, let's wrap this up by seeing some of the balance provided for us in verse number 13 by looking at two words that Paul gives us some caution regarding. The first word he says, okay, now, now let no man put a stumbling block. Stumbling block. It's the Greek word proskoma. Proskoma. Have you ever had this happen to you? And it's not funny. So I'm not, I'm not, somebody's attempting some form of, of bad humor, but have you ever had someone, when you're preparing to sit down, pull the chair out from behind you? That really gives a, a, a fair understanding of the idea of stumbling block. Like, wow, here, I, I had every confidence that I was going to put myself in this chair and someone just pulled the chair out from underneath me. Maybe you've just been walking along and rather innocently and there's nothing obstructing your way and then someone just comes up behind you and again, at some cheap attempt of humor, they just kind of catch your foot and, and they trip you up. Again, this is the idea of now I'm actually causing someone else some potential harm from my action causing them to stumble. We can picture a believer enjoying their liberty in the Lord when, when potentially some legalistic believer comes behind them and pulls the chair out from under them. They, they, they catch their foot and they trip and they stumble and fall. There is some sense of this stumbling block that he says, listen, you are not supposed to be the cause of another person falling. Now, we'll again explore this further so we won't spend too much time belaboring this. 
But oftentimes a person says, you're being a stumbling block or, or you're causing some issue with me. I'm offended by that and they want us to stop doing something. But the problem is not that it's causing them to stumble. They just want you to do it the same way they do. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying your actions, the things that you're involved in, should not be pulling the chair out from someone else who had confidence in one thing and now like, wow, I tumbled in my Christian walk. And then the other one is, again, similar, but it's still unique. He now says not only this, this you know, stumbling block, but then he says, or an occasion to fall. It's a different word. He says, don't be a stumbling block. Don't pull the chair out from underneath. And then he says, okay, or don't give another an occasion to fall. That's the Greek word scandalon. Scandalon. We would get the word scandalous from. It carries the idea of setting a snare or a trap along the trail where some wildlife might pass. Here we can picture some believer who's walking in their newfound faith and they watch some other believer participate in something that leads this new believer down a path of destruction. They weren't thinking clearly. They, they were leading another person down this path, down this trail, and all of a sudden they are ensnared in something. They're caught up in something. Paul's going to address this very directly, as, and we'll get to that passage next week. He says, listen, your responsibility, your freedom is not as great as your responsibility to another brother. Don't let the liberty that you enjoy actually become something that ensnares another believer and causes them some scandal. If they become entangled or ensnared by something that keeps them from correctly following Jesus, we have led them down a bad path. It becomes, in a very real sense, scandalous. We must understand that our Christian liberty is vertical. It is before the Lord. And that's what Paul's been spending a lot of time here addressing by saying, don't judge the liberty that another person is experiencing with the Lord. But the exercise of that liberty is horizontal. This is because our lives and our actions do impact the lives of others. Clearly, Paul was concerned with how this new liberty would impact both strong believers as well as those who were weaker in the faith. In one sense, Paul is saying, okay, if you really want to judge something, judge yourself with this. Are you obstructing another believer in the exercise of his faith? Are you hindering him in any way? In fact, could your actions be the cause of another person falling into sin? You know, when I'm studying this passage, I did keep coming back to that, that time when I was sitting in someone else's seat. He was gracious about it and kind, and he said with a smile on his face, you're, you're in my seat. So I just scooted over. I wonder if we were listening carefully today to God the Holy Spirit, if he might say to people like you and people like me, you are sitting in my seat. Our response is not to be, well, go find your own. Our response is to move out of a seat that doesn't belong to us, allowing the person who rightly possesses that chair 
to sit there all by himself. Do you know, quite honestly, we do fairly consistently look for opportunity to judge. We do it naturally. We have a common inclination that that is a problem that I suspect happens for most of us. But we also have a first priority, and it is not to have others stand before us. It is to know I am standing before God. I do so on a daily basis, and ultimately I will do so where my works will be judged. And I've also been called to practice something faithfully. And that is not standing in judgment of my brother, but standing beside my brother, encouraging one another in this walk of faith. May by God's grace, may we not sit in another person's 